Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at politics in Northern Ireland. Can power-sharing government return, and what are the implications for Northern Ireland's future? Hello, my name is Alan Rinnick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Most of the UK went to the polls last week, and the vote in Northern Ireland was perhaps particularly significant. Next year will mark 25 years since the 1998 Belfast or Good Friday Agreement, which brought peace to Northern Ireland after nearly 30 years of conflict. The power-sharing arrangements established by the agreement have brought many successes, but they're teetering on the edge of collapse. Whether a new executive can be formed following last week's elections is far from clear, but the consequences of failure could be severe. So can power sharing be restored? If so, how? And how might Northern Ireland move beyond repeated collapses of devolved government and find a more stable political footing? Well, here to explore those questions are two leading experts. Alan Weissel is a former UK senior civil servant and now an honorary senior research associate at the Constitution Unit within the UCL Department of Political Science. Last week, he released a discussion paper with the Constitution Unit entitled Northern Ireland's Political Future, Challenges After the Assembly Elections. And Dr. Etain Tannum is Associate Professor of International Peace Studies at the School of Religion, Theology and Peace Studies at Trinity College Dublin. Etain is an expert on cross-border cooperation on the island of Ireland and British-Irish intergovernmental cooperation. Keen listeners may remember that she appeared on the podcast last year when we discussed another constitution unit project, the Working Group on Unification Referendums on the Island of Ireland. And she has a book on British-Irish relations in the 20th century coming next year from Oxford University Press. Alan Nittain, welcome to both of you. And let's start by getting our heads around the system in Northern Ireland. It's very different from how things work elsewhere in the UK, indeed also different from most other democracies. So Tane, would you like to kick us off? What are the, the principles underlying the system of government and politics in Northern Ireland? I suppose the main um, underlying point is that the North, in Northern Ireland, we are still dealing with a divided society, but when the negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement occurred, the, the aim was reconciliation and to achieve political cooperation between nationalist and unionist parties. So one of the big differences, if not the big difference, between the Westminster um, approach or model of democracy is that in Northern Ireland, it is a consociational power sharing system. It is not a case that um, either the electoral system or the system overall represents the majority party as the, the sort of single party government or even in coalition. It is there to represent minority voices, minority parties at the time. At the, the focus was very much on the nationalist minority to protect its rights in a power sharing arrangement with unionists. But if we read the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, it also emphasizes in various ways that the principle is there to protect all communities. And um, if in the future, the unionist community is in minority. So I think the basic underlying principle is that it's a consociational power sharing system which protects minority parties and has an electoral system, P or STV, which is used in Ireland as well, um, which also aims to represent smaller parties more um, accurately, not perfectly, but more accurately than in the majoritarian system. 
Right, thank you, Etienne. So part of that is about a proportional electoral system, which of course we don't have in the rest of the UK on the whole, but uh, many democracies do have. But then in addition to that, there's also this power sharing element uh, that goes beyond merely having a proportional system. Um, Alan, do you want to explain how that, that power sharing government uh, functions within the agreement and, and in practice in Northern Ireland? Yes. I mean, every boy and every girl who's born into the world alive in, in the conception of the, the agreement is either a little unionist or a little nationalist. Uh, people coming into the assembly designate themselves as unionist or nationalist or, or other. And if they don't designate, they're deemed to be other. Designation is important for an awful lot of what runs through the agreement. Uh, the first thing the, the assembly is supposed to do when it meets next Friday after it elects a speaker is to select a well, it is the venue for the selection of a first minister and a deputy first minister. And the largest party in the assembly gets to nominate the first minister. And the largest party in the designation, the largest designation in the assembly, apart from the first ministers, gets to nominate the deputy first minister. Uh, this system was not designed to be either easily comprehensible or for efficacy in government. But essentially, the understanding was that one minister uh, would be a unionist, uh, and the expectation was that unionists would go on being the, the, the largest bloc, uh, so they would nominate a first minister, and that's always been the case until now, and nationalists would nominate a deputy first minister. Although, despite their names, their functions are precisely identical and all jointly exercised, and they even get paid the same salary. So um, uh, there's no objective reason why they should have, have different names. And so those parties are the ones who nominate those officers uh, and they alone can do it. And if they choose not to do it, then you don't get an executive. Uh, and that's the position we may find ourselves in. Most other ministers are appointed by a, a strange algorithm called the Dehont system, which gives you essentially a, a running order in which parties can nominate people into the executive uh, and overall yields a roughly proportionate result. To, to strengthen the assembly. So this executive is not constituted by any sort of political agreement. It's constituted by an algorithm uh, and is sometimes called mandatory coalition. And then minority protection agreements run through a lot of what happens in the assembly and also in the executive. We have this conception of important votes being taken by cross-community support, which generally means that uh, there must be at least 40% of unionists and at least 40% of nationalists voting for them, and 60% overall. So a lot of minority protection, a lot of scope, however, for obstruction. As I say, power sharing is hardwired in, and if somebody doesn't want to share power, then the system won't work, ultimately. The public very much want the parties to work together, polling suggests that. But most parties are still based in one or other community and they obey the particular political imperatives of that context. Uh, and so we'll come on to the outworkings of that in the current context a bit later, I think. We certainly will. Just before we get to the, how the, the institutions actually work in practice, it's worth remembering that those power-sharing institutions within Northern Ireland are kind of embedded within other relationships. So the, the agreement is sometimes talked about as having three strands. And the first strand is how Northern Ireland works within itself. And then strands two and three are about relations between Northern Ireland and the south of Ireland, and also between Ireland and the UK. 
Atang, do you want to fill us in just a little bit on why those are there and, and how they work? Yeah, I mean, it's a very unique agreement and, and very complex, although it's very short um, in length to read. And Brendan O'Leary has referred to it as slightly different from the usual consociational system. It's, it's called consociation plus um, is the term he uses. And the argument is that the strand one power sharing institution on its own or institutions on their own would not suffice to maintain agreement and cooperation and ultimately reconciliation, which is the overarching aim of the agreement, that more was required to underpin that and to ensure that the parties in a sense stayed on track and that I suppose cooperative democracy and smooth running democracy eventually emerged. So it was not anticipated that the agreement was a quick fix. And I think it was anticipated there would be um, so many issues which um, Alan's excellent report has dealt with, for example, the legacy issue and, and other many issues. So the strands two and three are really part of a package and the agreement um, states that the three strands are interdependent and interlocking so that the um, success of the agreement depends on all three working together. And as you've said, strand two focuses on cooperation between Northern Ireland and Ireland and it's the north-south strand is the term used and it really is there to um, I suppose to develop functional practical cooperation in areas of common interest between Northern Ireland and Ireland but it doesn't assume a kind of organic spontaneous emergence of this which used to be the case that was very much the approach in the early 90s it sets up specifically the north-south ministerial council which um, comprises ministers from Northern Ireland, from the executive and from Ireland in functional areas that were agreed. Um, six areas um, in particular that would have powers on the committee and then six additional areas. So the list was whittled down. There were a lot of more areas, 140, but it's a very sensitive issue for unionists. Um, traditionally, unionists have seen cross-border cooperation as a means to achieve unification by stealth. Not all unionists, and Terence O'Neill in the 60s tried to develop it, but um, a cohort of unionism has regarded it suspiciously. So it isn't a very extensive list of areas where cooperation occurs. The remit is not huge. For example, for COVID, there was no remit really in the North-South Ministerial Council. In managing an all-island approach, that was very difficult. But it is um, a way of developing practical cooperation, much like um, the Irish government's shared island approach in a way, but in a tentative way, because it is very sensitive. The problem, in a sense, with that is that um, the institution can only meet the North South Ministerial Council when the executive is up and running. So when there are collapses, it doesn't exist. Strand three, also um, equally important, is to foster British-Irish intergovernmental cooperation in a way that Alan mentions in his report to shape and frame discussions where there are contentious issues. It is only to operate for non-devolved areas, but nevertheless, it has significant um, responsibility. For example, international treaty discussions or other areas which are relevant to Northern Ireland. So they are meant to underpin the overall power sharing arrangement. Great, thank you, Aten. So it's really helpful to have the kind of basics and the, the principles and the theory of this system clear in our minds before we proceed further. Um, but as we've, as I said at the start, we've been kind of hinting all the way through this, there are now serious dangers facing these arrangements. Um, so Alan, why is it that 
the power sharing arrangements in Northern Ireland are now in jeopardy? Well, tensions have been building for a long time. They've probably been building for the last 10 years. Um, devolution nearly collapsed in 2014 and 2015. Uh, essentially, you have two, the two leading parties in Northern Ireland are a very long way apart. Uh, they came together rather remarkably in, uh, in the very odd couple, admirably odd couple of, of Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, who were certainly worlds apart, but actually became in the early days quite an effective pair. Uh, and indeed developed a friendship that lasted until Dr Paisley's death. Um, uh, so, you know, that, that was a, an indication of the, the remarkable things that, that did ultimately follow from the agreement. It in some ways led the way. But tensions, I say, had started to develop over a, a range of issues between, between these parties. And in 2017, Sinn Féin brought the institutions down over the, 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 the renewable heat incentive affair scandal, though there was much, much more under the surface than that. And, and we lost devolution for three years until it was brought back in 2020. But Brexit came along and made the polarisation much worse. Uh, among the main parties in Northern Ireland, the DUP favoured Brexit. Uh, the other four main parties didn't. Uh, Northern Ireland voted Remain, 56 to 44. And then the protocol, which started by to the beginning of last year, uh, has exacerbated things much more. And its most visible manifestation is there are now there are checks on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, the, the Irish Sea border. Now, in fact, there have been checks, uh, phytosanitary checks there for some time onwards coming into Northern Ireland. But um, at all events, uh, this has been regarded by some unionists as an attack on, on the constitutional status of Northern Ireland within the UK. And that has driven unionist politics into some chaos as regards the DUP, which uh, uh, had three leaders last year. And it has also driven unionist politics well to the right. And that has been spurred on, it has to be said, by increasingly belligerent noises coming out of London about disavowing or in some ways suspending the protocol that it signed. So much that the DUP, having threatened to do so for quite a long time, withdrew their first minister in February of this year. And that sort of semi-collapsed the executive. It collapsed it into caretaker status. Uh, with the First Minister gone, the Deputy First Minister is also ejected from power by law. The executive can't meet. So although the other ministers remain on a caretaker basis, uh, that is really all they can do. They can't take any new, any new initiatives. And as I say, nobody but the DUP under the, uh, in the, old, the old Assembly could provide a First Minister. So the main issue now, if we're going to come on to that, over the formation of the new executive, is that the DUP say they won't go back until their demands on the protocol are met. Uh, what their demands are is not entirely clear. They've left themselves wiggle room. They talk about replacement. There is potentially another big issue handling, uh, hang, hanging over the negotiations, uh, and that's about the institutions. There are two aspects to that. One is that, uh, as the election has turned out, we now have a Sinn Féin, or Sinn Féin have the right to nominate a first minister. Uh, and the DUP is relegated to, to Deputy First Minister. Now, as I say, materially, that makes absolutely no difference. They're, they are absolutely joint and equal. But there is potentially a psychological issue here, which, if we get over the protocol issue, may, may complicate things. For the moment, though, the DUP seems to be, to be downplaying this somewhat. But the other institutional question is now that we have a very large centre ground, thanks to the Alliance Party. Indeed, the Alliance Party now is the centre ground, effectively. And... These are the others, the ones who don't designate unionist or nationalist, and are in some ways disadvantaged. 
So the cross-community support arrangements give a veto to unionists and nationalists, but not to the others. Is that sustainable? Uh, should the institutions change to adapt to that? Well, the, the Alliance Party certainly says they should. Others are, 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 are very much more doubtful, but we may see more of that as well. But this is quite possibly a process that is going to go on and ultimately the, the agreement institutions may need to change to reflect it. Yeah, so and before we get to that, we, we haven't actually said what happened in the elections. Uh, right, last no, no. Week. But as you've strongly hinted there, Sinn Féin came out as the largest party, the DUP, the, the largest unionist party, came out second, the Alliance Party, the party that doesn't designate as either nationalist or unionist, uh, came out in third place and significantly grew its it, its uh, support. H have the elections changed anything? Attained, maybe maybe um, we, we, we should hear your perspective on this. You're, you're sitting in Dublin. Um, does, does it strike you that the elections have changed the situation? Hmm. I think it's a very tricky question. I think um, Alan's point that it was a huge symbolic uh, significance is, is a key point. Um, so you mean particularly the fact that Sinn Féin came first? Yes. Symbolically yeah. significant. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that has never happened. We should just explain there yeah, has never no, been a victory for a nationalist party in all of the century and a year of Northern Ireland's history. Yeah, no, exactly. And it is the first time it has happened. So it is of symbolic importance. I think it has been overstretched in a way by the media. I, I think particularly the London media um, have tended to paint it as the first time nationalists have had power nearly. Um, and that is not the case. We've just explained here how the Good Belfast Good Friday Agreement arranged for power sharing with, with protections at every level of, of nationalists. So, and they're in a power sharing a government together and these, the level of power between different power differential between first minister and deputy is not there. So I think that's been exaggerated, but I think symbolically it is important. I would argue perhaps it's more important to look at the, at the moment at the configuration of, of those in favor of the protocol in the assembly, because a majority, um, I think it's around 60%, would seem to be in favor of the protocol. So to me, that is more significant. The, the problems that exist in Northern Ireland are, are still there. It's a divided society. And whether it is Sinn Féin that holds the first minister position or whether it's the DUP, those problems are there. So I would argue the significance has been exaggerated by some in the London media, um, but it is of historic importance. It's very symbolically important. And also the narrative that is being put forward about it being connected to a border poll, even though Sinn Féin in the run-up to the election downplayed that, I think that does have some kind of reputational importance for Sinn Féin and for those supporting unification that the international media is, is pushing forward that story. So it is not as significant as some are saying, but it is significant symbolically. Mm. So we're not going to immediately get a referendum on Irish unification just because Sinn Féin is the largest party. Sorry, on you go, Isen. Also, just to add that the, as many have pointed out, the, um, you know, vote shares, which I haven't written down, <laughs> but the, the vote shares are, you know, not hugely significant. There aren't huge changes in the nationalist vote. And I think the verdict on the election is really that um, Sinn Féin had to do very little given the DUP's um, division and inability in a way to shape its grassroots supporters, that there's an inability in the DUP, perhaps in unionism more generally, to lead its followers. 
and to shape opinion in the way that Sinn Féin has been doing, because Sinn Féin, you know, was able to moderate its position before this election to talk about bread and butter issues, to downplay a border poll in the run-up to the election, and it had support from its followers and grassroots in doing that. And it was a very effective party machine, whereas unionism seems to be afraid of the grassroots, afraid of electoral competition from rivals and doesn't play that leadership role in the unionist parties. So I think that has been a factor in Sinn Féin's success rather than it necessarily being something um, that is a, an extreme example of success. Mm. So the big question now, I guess, is will it be possible to form an executive again? Um, and Alan, I guess two questions to you. One is, what do you see as likely to happen over the coming weeks and indeed months? And second, if we do want the power sharing arrangements to be restored, what steps might need to be taken in order to allow that to happen? Well, where do we go from now? Because of a change in the law, uh, we used to have seven days, then 14 days uh, of negotiation after the election. And if there was no agreement uh, on the basis of which to, to reform government to nominate first minister and deputy first minister, uh, we used to go to another election, but now we have six months. So we have potentially a six month negotiation period. It can be, can be cut short uh, with elections at the end of that. Uh, we have a caretaker government at the moment, no FM and DFM, so no, no big decisions. As first minister and deputy first minister. Uh, first minister and deputy first minister, I'm sorry, yes, I'm falling into the jargon. So uh, potentially though we have, and this looms over it, another election uh, just before or just after Christmas. Now, what would have happened in the past is the British and Irish governments would have worked very closely together to flow compromise, to put forward new ideas, to, to, do, to do brokerage, to try to bring together a basis on which uh, government could resume. And uh, Julian Smith, uh, as Secretary of State, uh, and his counterpart, the Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney, did that extremely effectively in 2020. But matters have changed radically in London since then. Smith was promptly sacked for his troubles because his, his Brexit face didn't fit, as it were. Uh, and since then, London, in its approach to Brexit, has diverged a long way from Dublin, and there have been many public spats. To some people, it appeared that it was stirring up trouble in Northern Ireland in order to have battles that it wanted to have for Westminster reasons. Polling now suggests in Northern Ireland, London is mistrusted really across the board and deeply unpopular. So there is a question how far it can discharge this role of, 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 of working to... Uh, uh, to bring about compromise. Now, the Secretary of State has said that the UP should nominate a Deputy First Minister, as they're refusing to do. But we will see where we go. Uh, it has been widely briefed uh, that London will, uh, at some stage before long, either suspend parts of the protocol by invoking its Article 16, uh, the legality of which will be disputed in Brussels, or just repudiate uh, some or all of it altogether. And we had a, a range of rumours coming out of London during, during the campaign. Uh, this leads to the suspicion that London may, in large part, want to use the talks to bash Brussels over the head uh, and say, change the protocol or you will have destroyed devolution in Northern Ireland. Now, in the long term, it's very difficult. That is going to work in protocol terms. Uh, it's hard to see how the EU could give anything of that sort. Uh, and one of the, uh, the failings in the debate in Northern Ireland over the protocol is that it, uh, it proceeds almost completely uh, without regard for what the EU could in fact give. If it looked at what the EU could give, it might find that it could give a great deal to the benefit of Northern Ireland, because you know, many say 
the protocol puts Northern Ireland now in a unique position where it has access to the single market, both of the EU and of Great Britain, and it could build on that. And the Brussels claims to be a friend of the Good Friday Agreement, has put much money in uh, and potentially could, uh, could do a lot to favour Northern Ireland. But at the moment, we're not working in that direction. And it looks as if we may be looking at another London-Brussels dust-up. Uh, but what should happen is that the negotiation should focus on seriously strengthening the agreement. Uh, and the paper talks about the need for renewal, because the, the underpinnings of the agreement are things like promoting reconciliation, ending, reducing social division, reducing the influence of paramilitaries, have really rather stalled. And the other bit that the agreement never really looked at at all, but which is increasingly important, is ensuring we get good government. Uh, on the whole, you can't claim that devolved, devolved governments, remarkable though they are in many ways and positive though the fact of their existence was for, for reconciliation in Northern Ireland, you can't really argue that they have delivered well on the economic and social problems that Northern Ireland faces. It's public service problems. The health service, for example, is struggling to a degree even very much greater than, than that in, in England. Depressingly, though, the political dialogue is not about that. I mean, all the election manifestos made token, well, sorry, had chunks about social and economic issues, but they weren't really discussed. Where are we going to go? Anybody can say. For, the, for myself, I rather think that the DUP would do a deal if it could. It would be well advised to. It did a lot better in this election than it might have feared, uh, and it lost nearly a quarter of its vote, but still only a couple, two or three uh, MLAs, members of the Assembly. Uh, if it goes to another election at the end of this year, it might seriously suffer. The TUV, the traditional unionist voice, the hardline party, uh, remarkably, they've got seven and a half percent of the vote. Uh, it is very transfer unfriendly, as we say in, in Northern Ireland election speak. It doesn't pick up second preferences. It didn't pick up second or indeed 11th preferences. Uh, very few people wanted to transfer their votes to the TUV whereas lots and lots of people transferred their votes to the Alliance Party, and that was a large part of their success. Uh, a lot of their candidates came in very late uh, on the 11th count or whatever. So uh, the DUP might well want to avoid another election. As I say, I think if it, it is politically to be in that position, uh, it needs a good deal of political engineering. It probably needs another agreement or something that it can say has in some way supplanted the protocol and given it extra benefits and flexibilities. But to be clear, you know, London can deliver flexibilities as well. The reason that we have uh, a lot of the checks in the Irish Sea is because London has been clear that it doesn't want uh, sanitary and phytosanitary, uh, agri-food standards to be tied to those of Europe. Uh, now, if it did, the need for a lot of checks would, would disappear. But it's, it's going to need a big deal to be able to do this. And that means that London and Dublin have got to be in the right place and, and working together. So if I understand correctly, I mean, I think a lot of people in London might be thinking, and the UK government might be thinking that the problem is the protocol. And if you fix the protocol, then you fix the problem. But what you're arguing is, I mean, firstly, the protocol is what the protocol is, and there's not much you can do about, about that really. But secondly, there are problems in Northern Ireland politics, and they need to be addressed. They predate in some, to some that, degree that, Brexit. They've been exacerbated by Brexit, but fundamentally there are tensions within the, the system created in 1998, and those need to be addressed. And if those aren't addressed, then there isn't going to be a long-term solution. 
I think that's exactly right. I mean, we need a short term solution. Uh, we hmm. need to keep the, the institutions in being because if we once lose the institutions, then we are in a dire situation. Uh, uh, and, you know, we are in a political vacuum and that has never led to good things in, in Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, but we want more than a sticking plaster deal this time. We've had a number of sticking plaster deals in 2014, 2015, 2020, uh, which papered over the, which you know, dealt with the immediate political problems. But we need to look at the fundamentals as well. We need to look at the uh, uh, things like promoting reconciliation. Uh, we need to look potentially at institutional change. We certainly need to look at delivering good government. Uh, and if we can do that, then there's a good chance. You know, that the hope is the next executive will have made itself indispensable by the end of its term so that its dissolution is unthinkable because it's delivering good things for people in Northern Ireland. Uh, and we haven't had an executive that's done that so far. Uh, the last executive, you could wonder what it was really about beyond surviving from day to day, didn't even manage to adopt a programme for government. We need to be in a very different position next time, in my view. Yeah, and Etain, so one of, one of the points that Alan has made there and makes in his report is that um, the role of the British and Irish governments in all of this is very important for kind of underpinning and, and supporting uh, what happens in Northern Ireland. And I think you would both agree, tell me if I'm wrong, that the, that could be going quite a lot better than it has been going at present. And how is this perceived from Dublin? Well, without a doubt, I think the relationship has not been so poor in decades. And the whole uh, normative approach and agreed approach to Northern Ireland from the mid 80s um, really has fallen apart. So the focus of that was that both governments would meet regularly, would be on the same page, would carve a strategy, which was based on creating incentives to the parties to cooperate and also disincentives and, and sticks, carrot and stick approach if they didn't. So it was about framing things. It was about building up trust. The big focus in the 80s rhetoric and then in the 90s, it, it sort of emerged as successful was to build trust between the governments by meeting regularly. So that trust has diminished to uh, really, it's unprecedented in the past 25 years, definitely, if not more. And um, so I think the, the view in Dublin is that relations are poor. Obviously that would be the view in London as well. And that going back to the three strands approach and the interdependency, of the of the uh, strands of the agreement is a, a really necessary to get back on track, as Alan has said, and to get cooperation back to the level of trust it once had. And specifically, that also means that governments do not behave unilaterally. And the UK government has of late been at least announcing it will behave unilaterally and sometimes behaving unilaterally. So after a meeting um, between the Minister for Foreign Affairs in Ireland, Simon Coveney, and Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland last year, which seemed quite a cordial meeting, and they made a joint statement after, again, something that doesn't happen very often anymore. Nearly immediately after that, the British government announced a, unilaterally a change to the legacy plans, which Alan has written about. So things like that do not build trust, because the, the old approach was to, on um, issues where there had been agreement bilaterally with the parties, to make any changes bilaterally and with the parties. So trust is low because of that, because of the unilateralism, because of the unpredictability of the British government's behavior as regards the protocol and general Brexit negotiations. I think that has made trust low. And um, if I could just go back to the future, I think it's important to note that a majority of the population in Northern Ireland support the agreement. So there are disincentives for the DUP in, in pulling out and it does have power, it's just 25 seats 
in the executive versus 27 for Sinn Féin, back to the argument that we shouldn't exaggerate the impact of the election. So it has a vested interest um, because also, and this was very much a, a British-Irish approach also in terms of carrot and stick, there is a potential, or there was a potential threat in a sense or implication that if the agreement collapsed, there could be joint authority. That was always the implicit sort of approach that to entice unionist parties to cooperate in the agreement and, and to compromise generally was that the alternative could be joint authority. And I think that is, is an incentive as well. But that requires, again, both governments to be on the same page. You know, if that's not, the, if there's a, a divided approach, it's very difficult to be strategic to encourage compromise. And also given the fragility and given the challenges unionists face, it would be unwise to create threats because a lot of this is coming from insecurity um, and a lot of conflict, ethnic conflict always does. So I think that it's a very tricky situation to manage. I don't think threatening in any way implicitly is very helpful at the moment. Our time on these, in these conversations always comes to an end far more quickly than I would like. So we're very nearly at the end of our time, but can I just ask each of you one very brief question to conclude, which is what is your one key message to policymakers? If, you, uh, if I force you to say one quick thing, what would it be? Itain, do you want to go first? I think to be fair to both governments, um, the Irish government under Michael Martin has been lobbying the EU to be as flexible as it can and to be conscious of the special situation of Northern Ireland. So I think to continue lobbying for that flexibility as much as possible and to the UK government to be flexible and to put stability in Northern Ireland first pragmatically to have that flexibility and to go back to the bilateralism and trust building of the past. And Alan? I think uh, the important thing is London needs to do the right thing. You know, for 30 years or, 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 or more, London slowly learned about dealing with Northern Ireland and it recognised it as a, a cardinal policy object, a serious policy objective, not always an overriding one, but an important policy objective of London to ensure political compromise, ensure political stability in Northern Ireland. Uh, and it did that in, in close partnership with Dublin. And that in the last two years has not been apparent in London's outlook. Uh, I don't think that what it's doing at the moment either fosters you know, political stability or actually favours the union in the long term. And I think things can go very, very seriously wrong if it doesn't at some stage revert to the sorts of approach that the previous governments of both parties have adopted and seek to promote political stability. Well, thank you so much, Alan and Itain. These are important matters and it's been good to discuss them and chew over them a little bit with you. The discussion paper, Northern Ireland's Political Future, Challenges After the Assembly Elections by Alan Weissel is available free to download on the Constitution Unit's website. And as I said, Itain's new book entitled British-Irish Relations in the 21st Century will be out next year. And you'll uh, find a post exploring some of these issues by Atain and Connor Kelly on the Constitution Unit's blog, also from last week. Next week, we will be looking at possible policy responses to the climate crisis. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. And there you can also find that previous episode of UCL Uncovering Politics that I mentioned with Attain talking about possible 
future unification referendums on the island of Ireland. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched by Conor Kelly and produced by James Cleaver. Our theme music is written and performed by John. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.